Simple Beep, Episode 9, Triumph of the Nerds, Part 1. Hello, and welcome back to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And in this episode, we're going to go a little bit meta, I think, because we're going to look back at a classic documentary that deals with some of the history of the Mac, and we're going to look at it in terms of the history that it describes and it as a historical artifact itself. And what we're going to be looking at is the documentary Triumph of the Nerds, which aired on PBS back in 1996. But before we get to that, we have a little bit of feedback from our last episode, and we'll get through this quick. So our previous episode was about our favorite shareware game for the Mac, Escape Velocity. And towards the end of the episode, we talked about a few things that we knew of that were inspired by Escape Velocity, and we are always looking for that same Escape Velocity experience in a modern game, and we didn't really find much. I had an old iOS game that is no longer available, things like that. But we got some great feedback from listener Peter Bachenhauer, who sent us a few links um, to modern games that some of them are unabashedly inspired by Escape Velocity, and some of them are more indirect. So one of them, I, I don't know how to pronounce this, whether it's N-A-E-V or naive, which is kind of a, <laughs> a terrible pun, um, is a project that's currently going on. And the EV at the end of that, this is why it's a pun, it clearly stands for Escape Velocity. They say on their About page that they were definitely inspired by the game. And their logo for the game definitely depicts a Kestrel from original Escape Velocity. This game, they say it's in beta. Uh, it definitely seems like it's almost in alpha. Uh, it's cross-platform, but uh, has a Mac version. And the way that you have to install the Mac version is to download and install the app and then download a separate data file and go into the app package contents and put the data file in. Otherwise, the game doesn't work. I uh, haven't had a chance to try this out personally, but uh, seems fairly interesting. Another one is called Star Sector, uh, which is really going with the Escape Velocity top-down combat mode. They have like a nine-minute combat demo video on their website, and the graphics are gorgeous. The gameplay looks a little bit, I don't know, complex. There seem to be like just a million meters on the heads-up display, but maybe that's because it's also sort of in development. I think it's uh, available through Steam, so a couple options there. And then just as a general resource, uh, there's a website called spacesimcentral.com, which sort of catalogs this whole genre of games. Like we said, you know, this genre really hasn't ever gone away. It's something that people who are, you know, science fiction fans will always be interested in. So we'll link up all of those in the show notes. And if you didn't get Escape Velocity running, well, I don't know if this will actually be any easier, some of those installation instructions, but you can you can go give these a shot and uh, see if you like them. We also want to make some shout outs to some other podcasts that are looking at uh, the history of Apple, some older Macintosh models and uh, the community in there as well. Yeah, we're excited that this is a bigger community than just us. A big launch of podcasts this past week is a podcast called Welcome to Macintosh that's hosted by Mark Bramhill. 
And it's a different format from our show, which I think is nice. Uh, nice short episodes. I think the first episode clocked in around 22 minutes. And it's more in the sort of NPR radio lab type of format. It's got interviews that are cut in, has an overarching story, and tells one piece of Mac history. The first one is about sort of the rise and fall of skeuomorphism in Apple's products. Also, the website for that is macintosh.fm, which good going there, getting that URL. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Another show that we discovered recently, but they have not launched recently, is called the Retro MacCast. They've been around for a long time. They're up in like episode 300 or something. Uh, weekly show. And one of the cool things that they feature pretty much every week is they go and hunt down stuff on eBay, old classic Mac paraphernalia. They try to find some of the weirdest stuff, old machines, like promotional materials. Uh, pretty interesting. I, I mean, I used to sort of collect Mac stuff that way back, I don't know, I guess when I was in high school, I have a closet full of Mac posters still, you know, think different posters and things like that. Um, definitely an interesting look. They also get guests on and feature uh, a particular Mac model. Uh, definitely worth your time if you've got still more spare time to fill with podcasts. We know that most people are are lagging behind on their podcast queues. So, uh, you know, we try to keep it short and sweet here, but in case you're interested, go go check those guys out. Really cool work. Speaking of other podcasts, uh, getting into today's episode of Simple Beep, we decided to rewatch this Triumph of the Nerds TV show because of recent episodes of the Accidental Tech Podcast. Episode 105 was titled, Do You Want to Sell Sugar Phones for the Rest of Your Life? Which was a modification of a Steve Jobs quote that I think was brought to public light in the Triumph of the Nerds show, Do You Want to Sell Sugar Water for the Rest of Your Life? AKA how he convinced, uh, was it John Scully to leave Pepsi and come to Apple? Yes. And so there was this brief mention and got the episode title for ATP episode 105. And then because people didn't understand it, <laughs> uh, there was some follow up about it. And in, you know, the great hypercritical and ATP tradition of, of follow up, there was an amazing overwrought explanation of, what Triumph of the Nerds was and where this quote came from and all of the background and context, uh, typical Syracuse follow-up rant. And we thought, you know, I realized that I had never actually seen Triumph of the Nerds. So I decided what better time to go back and, uh, and look through this other piece of Mac history and also just the entire computer industry history. Triumph of the Nerds is a PBS series based on the 1992 book Accidental Empires by Robert Cringely. Robert X. Cringely. The X is the key because it's the obvious tip-off that this is a pen name. Yes, I was going to say, let's talk about this character first. One of the craziest things about the beginning of the show is that Robert X. Cringely shows up on the screen and the first words out of his mouth are, Hi, I'm Bob Cringely. <laughs> Who is this man? Well, he, he was born as Mark Stevens, and he adopted the pen name of Cringely when he was writing for InfoWorld magazine. And the funny thing is that he was actually the third person to have this pseudonym. So they had like a, quote, gossip column in their magazine, which was otherwise, you know, a factual tech publication and sort of like a back page column or something. 
and you know something lighthearted and they decided to publish it under a pseudonym so there were two people who had the name before him rory j o'connor and lori flynn and then stevens took up the column what was interesting was that he had the column for the longest he wrote the column for about eight years but then in 1995 there was a bit of a falling out between him and infoworld and sounds like he was basically fired um but he wanted to keep writing under the name of Robert X. Cringely. And InfoWorld said, no, 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 that's our intellectual property. And there, was, there were many lawsuits back and forth about whether he could use the name. And the eventual conclusion was that he could use the name as his pen name, but not in competing tech publications. So this is how things wound up in, on PBS, for example. Someone from InfoWorld said, well, we don't compete directly with PBS, so it's okay that he can use the name there. The question of how he got to Bob, though, <laughs> still make, it makes me question, you know, like, he was taking this beyond just being his professional identity. Like, if you, if you adopt a pseudonym to the point that you take the nickname of the pseudonym and say, hi, I'm Bob, it, it's, it's gone to sort of an odd, odd place. Right. Uh, so InfoWorld still has a column using this pen name, Robert X. Cringely. And like we said, this guy, Mark Stevens, is still masquerading as Bob Cringely. He maintains his own personal website using the pen name, um, which itself is reporting about technology. So I wonder how he's, you know, floating under the, the non-compete clauses there. Um, well, who knows if it's expired or if it said, you know, magazines and print publications or, yeah. But it is funny that if you, you know, start just Googling around for this, you get his website, which is currently updated, like posts in February and March of 2015, which is like now as we record this episode. And if you search on the InfoWorld website, they also have like posts written last week by a Robert X. Cringely, but not the same guy. Very confusing. The Cringely we're going to be talking about, we will use the name Cringely, but we're referring to the man formerly known as Mark Stevens. Uh, on his uh, personal website, he has a little bit of a bio, which like everything on this page made me cringe. Yeah, I, I would think cringe-worthy is, would be a better <laughs> name for him. Yeah, he calls himself a sex symbol, airplane enthusiast, and adventurer. Uh, he's aware of his kind of controversial nature. So his contact information is under the heading, how you can reach him to tell him he's a dipstick. And finally, there's a section called on the existence of other Cringeleys. Uh, and it's clear that he is not happy. With he's still holding a grudge about that, even though he won, basically. I mean, you know, he has license and he's built his only professional career around this name. It just reeks a little bit. <laughs> Um, there's one, another part on the about page where he says that he, his services are available to the highest bidder, yeah. which I don't know. It just seems like the highest bid is not very high these days. In the show we're about to discuss, he makes reference to him being a very early employee of Apple. Um, and there's really no proof of this. Yeah. And he stated it multiple times. It's also, uh, He's also stated it in an interview that he did with Wired many years ago. Basically, I think one of the problems of trying to 
research Cringely slash Stevens is that the majority of the information about him comes from him. And that means that it all has to be taken with a grain of salt. So yeah, he said that he was an early employee at Apple and there's seems to be no concrete proof of this. Uh, one of the things that's cited as a counterexample of this is that for Apple's 30th anniversary, they released a series of posters which had the Apple logo in color and then a sort of a gray background. If you zoom in, all of the gray and color is colored text that they say lists every employee that has ever worked at Apple. And, you know, if they're going to come out and make that statement, you probably figure that they checked and double-checked that, but there's no Cringely and no Stevens on any of those. And, like I said, you have to take everything with a grain of salt from him. He's also famously, infamously said that he holds a PhD from Stanford, which that Wired article says as fact, probably because he told them so, and why would he lie about something like that? And, but then there was a big blow up when it was revealed that although he began work on a PhD at Stanford, he did not actually graduate with a PhD. And, you know, there are all kinds of scandals with people like overinflating their resumes and stuff. You know, politicians or people high up in companies and, you know, fall from grace and, you know, they lose their position. But it hasn't happened with him, I think, because, you know, throughout the whole his whole career, he's said, you know, I'm the gossip columnist. I'm, I'm just this guy who, you know, deals in the scandalous news. Scandalous, asterisk meaning not always factually correct. And, you know, sort of takes it, that approach to himself and everything that he covers. You know, maybe it's great entertainment, but uh, like I said, if you're trying to do history, which I think Triumph of the Nerds is sort of billed as history. It's documentary. It's on PBS for crying out loud. Um, and I remember, you know, I never saw this growing up, but I remember hearing from people our age or a little bit younger in school. It's like, oh, like, you know, we the teacher was out and we had a substitute and they needed to fill time. So they put on Triumph of the Nerds because like it's about technology, it's educational, and it was on PBS. But like, you know, yes, there are there's tons of, you know, little stories in here. And the interviews I think are very good because they don't seem to be taking quotes out of context. They aren't manipulating people's words and they're telling good stories, but everything that comes out of the host's mouth, um, <laughs> well, we'll get into it. It, it, it either, it either offends or makes you question. Um, but I suppose that's part of why it's a classic. It, it, there's no replacement for this. There's no just article that you can read. That's a nice factual history that will replace Triumph of the Nerds. So like we said, Triumph of the Nerds was based on Cringely's book, Accidental Empires, which has a very long, disgusting subtitle. How the boys of Silicon Valley make their millions, battle foreign competition, and still can't get a date. I think right off the bat, you kind of get a sense of the, the opinion in the commentary that Cringely is going to inject uh, to fill space between the factual anecdotes and interviews. Well, here's a direct quote from the book where he's talking about himself because he can't help it in the book. He says, historians have a harder job because they can be faulted for what is left out. Explainers like me can get away with printing only the juicy parts. 
he, he tries to say this is, you know, sins of omission, but, you know, the juicy parts are probably, you know, trumped up, if not totally fabricated. He, his original column was a gossip column. Yeah, he admits that, and it, it shows in his work. Like I said, it, it, it entertains. So one thing that I could never get past with Triumph of the Nerds is the title, <laughs> which I found out is a deliberate play on Revenge of the Nerds, the 1984 comedy movie, which I can never remember which is which, and it seems like one should be the sequel to the other. Well, I guess one was directly influenced by the other, but they're completely different. You know, we've, you know, sort of poked at it here saying, like, it's not completely factual, but it's not a, you know, romping comedy movie. Uh, Triumph of the Nerds, again, what we're talking about, was split across three episodes on PBS um, with a sequel, Triumph of the Nerds 2.0.1. which Version number jokes. Yeah, exactly, which uh, specifically covered the internet. Today, we're only going to talk about the part one of the original uh, three-part series. Yeah, and we should say, if you haven't seen it or haven't seen it recently, we suggest that you go check it out. Yeah, it'll take another hour of your time, but it'll definitely help you along through the episode. And it used to be on Netflix, I think. Uh, I saw several references online saying, go watch it on Netflix, but doesn't seem to be up there anymore because, you know, licenses change and things come and go. But there is a full version on YouTube as well as a full version on archive.org. Of course, you know, copyright questions there, but, you know, they're out there on the internet and you don't have to Go find a torrent or anything complicated like that. So we'll link up both of those where you can just go and stream the episode on the show notes. One other uh, thing that came out of uh, Triumph of the Nerds was that Steve Jobs features heavily in the series. He was interviewed for the series, and apparently it was a single sitting interview that was about 70 minutes, and about 10 minutes of footage made it into the series. Um, after Jobs' death in 2011, one of the series producers sort of went on a search and found the original footage, which was then released in 2012 and is apparently available as well. well let's get into it. The first part opens at a game of the Portland Trailblazers, the NBA team. Uh, Bob Cringely is here. And he's uh, talking about Paul Allen, the owner of the Trailblazers. The camera kind of awkwardly zooms in and out at his courtside seats, showing off uh, an impressive beard and large, quote, nerd glasses. I had, I had never, I had forgotten about Paul Allen's facial hair. Yeah, I, I, but there's lots of interesting facial hair in this documentary. There sure is. I suppose, I suppose that's one of the downsides of having a visual documentary that goes back and looks at you and your you know, teens and early 20s. <laughs> and the reason that Cringely opens at a Trailblazers game is to give a sense of how wealthy these nerds have become. Like, that is their triumph, is that they're fantastically rich. Paul Allen owns an NBA team. And as I was watching this in 2015, I was wondering, why didn't he buy the uh, the Seattle Supersonics? Seattle has a basketball team, and Seattle is where Microsoft was, or at least closer to not Portland. Um, and in the late 2000s, the Supersonics moved from Seattle to Oklahoma City. Uh, there's nothing official on why he 
bought the Portland team over the Seattle team, but he did say it was a sad day when the Sonics left Seattle. It was a move he opposed, and it's too early for him to comment any further about a plan to bring maybe an expansion team to Seattle in the near future. But he also owns the Seattle Seahawks, uh, recent Super Bowl champions, and part of the Seattle Sounders, the soccer team. So it was just something that struck me uh, completely set aside from the tech focus of the show. Well, it's interesting with the perspective of history that this wasn't just a lark, like, oh, I can buy a basketball team. That's fun. Like, he's clearly invested in sports teams over the past 20 years. Yes. And is still active in it. I mean, you know, I, a little over a year ago, you saw him on the field with the with the Seahawks winning the Super Bowl. So after this opening scene, we get the title sequence, which is an animated cartoon montage (laughs) and has some delightfully bad 90s music in the background i mean nerds is in the title of the show but they just go through every stereotype in the book like fat people eating pizza and playing space invaders where it's clearly space invaders and it's all men all like bearded spectacled men yeah, and either just out of shape, either in the like gangly skinny way or the complete lardo way. It's it's a bit rough. Then we start to get into the first interviews, and we see Steve Jobs for the first time. And man, at this point in his career, which is a couple years before he returned to Apple, so he's at Next at this point. Yeah, I think you can see a Next computer in the background. Like, he's he's sitting in front of one as he's being interviewed. Or something with the Next logo. And at this point in his life, Steve Jobs has never looked more like John Lennon. He's got the glasses and the hair and everything. But it's pretty much the Steve Jobs that, as Apple fans, we know and love with deep perspective on the computer industry and his, you know, traditional method of delivery. And what was it in that recently published piece about Johnny Ive? They said that he has a hint of menace. Yeah. Like it's so dead on. And that really didn't change across the arc of his career. It seems one thing to mention is that everybody that they put up on the screen who is involved in the tech industry it says their name, and then it might say the company that they work for, and then it says, worth so many million dollars, um, which seems a little bit crass. Yeah. And also uh, a nice way to date the film, because uh, I think Steve, well, well, I won't say because I don't know it, but suffice to say, the amount that Steve Jobs is reported to be worth at the filming of this show in 1996 is a fraction of what he would come to be worth. There's a voiceover where Cringely says, uh, back to Paul Allen, the owner of the Trailblazers, he's richer than God. His partner, Bill Gates, is richer than him. So it's, it's again, just driving that, like, the, the measure of success and the measure of the triumph in the title of the show is pretty much just money. And then uh, Cringely, Ever the Entertainer, the first time... He is introduced with a, a Chiron across the bottom of the screen, reports himself as being worth minus $113. Which is a joke, yeah. clearly, but it seems like there's a sort of nasty kernel of truth in it that 
throughout his career, he's just been sort of freelance, please accept my words, whatever they are, wherever they are. So, you know, he's probably never that bankrupt, but he he is a sell to the highest bidder kind of guy. Yes. And speaking of his introduction, uh, another modern comparison that I immediately thought of is that we get the establishing shot of Cringely driving through Silicon Valley, maybe Palo Alto or Mountain View or Cupertino um, in a in a classic red convertible with the top down, which is exactly how Guy Fieri starts every episode of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. So that's another great like <laughs> <laughs> comparison to uh, like someone who's not very well regarded in the field that they claim to be an expert in. Well, and the whole the whole campy notion there is that well, why is he in a car? Well, cars go in garages. And of course, all of these computer companies were founded in garages. But I mean, as the episode develops, he focuses on basically three companies, which were Apple, Microsoft, and MITS, which was an electronics company that created the Altair computer. And MITS was a company that like had office space. Um, they go into the history of Microsoft, which was founded in Boston, definitely not in a garage, while Gates was still a student at Harvard before he dropped out. And then the famous Apple garage, which I think recently Steve Wozniak has said, like, we didn't spend that much time in the garage and we definitely like didn't sign the paperwork there. Yeah. And I've heard that the um, the Aaron Sorkin, Steve Jobs movie is being filmed in the actual garage which will only perpetuate this notion maybe that was what it was in relation to that someone who was in the know came out and said you know like it's it's a nice romantic notion but it's only a fraction of the truth anyway cringely pulls into his own garage allegedly i i think this is a set (laughs) i mean it's huge for one and it's stocked with just absurd numbers of computers that are you know, props. Anyway, he makes the he makes some joke about he can pull his car into his garage, which has room for a car, unlike so many Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who are using their garage as their office space. It's just because he has a giant garage. <laughs> yeah. And then he clunks down what appears to be an a Mac color classic on his uh garage workbench to launch into his uh his tale of computers. And his tale of how he works from home from some other room in his house, which is filthy, for one. And then he talks about how he gets so much email, and there's a nice little montage that involves the Eudora chicken coming up and uh, making its sound effect. And scrolling through his huge inbox, uh, because you know clearly he is the hub of everything in Silicon Valley. My electronic mail address is deluged with inside information about everything from product flaws to who's sleeping with whom. The next scene finds Cringely going to what he calls the Weird Stuff Warehouse. It's like an an outdoor trade center for computers and computer parts. It's basically a flea market. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. At the Weird Stuff Warehouse, they... (laughs) pluck some child out of the out of the rows of uh pcbs that he's going through and you know i swear they looked for the nerdiest kid they could find because oh yeah you know it it's it's this uh little asian boy with big coke bottle glasses 
Um, his name is Edwin Chin. He's 10 years old. He talks about how he's getting into computers. And I'm, I'm looking at this. I'm going, wait, 10 years old, 1996. We are exactly the same age yeah. as Edwin Chin. We could have been Edwin Chin. <laughs> yeah, if we had only known. But the whole purpose here is to establish, essentially, what is a nerd. Yeah, there's there's footage of uh, older men, probably in their 20s and 30s, but all fitting the stereotype. Like I said, either like gangly with long hair and facial hair or overweight, and they're all wearing T-shirts and shorts. There are really dismissive comments about how women aren't even interested in this stuff. Like it's oh, this is this was about the point where I was like, oh, this is really going to rub me the wrong way several more times before this is over. Yeah, there's there's a faraway shot of a woman with her head in her hands, uh, and and he, you know, I'm sure he didn't talk to her, but he said like, oh, the only woman in the area is uh, is clearly bored, right? But one thing that gets intercut in this scene is one of the few well-known people who is interviewed who was not directly involved in creating a technology company. It's Douglas Adams, the science fiction writer, author of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And as we've mentioned, I think a few episodes ago, a real supporter of the Mac as creative tool. But he comes in with his own definition of a nerd, which I think is just so much more perceptive stands the test of time, and doesn't alienate anybody. Uh, so, you know, that this came in there was you know, the redeeming factor of the scene. I think a nerd is a person who uses the telephone to talk to other people about telephones. And a computer nerd, therefore, is somebody who uses a computer in order to use a computer. From the Weird Stuff Warehouse, we move on to uh, the offices of a technology startup in the 1990s. And if, the, if you weren't convinced that we were trading on stereotypes already, uh, stereotypes of what a nerd looks and sounds like, the stereotype of what uh, a young male technology startup office looks like uh, <laughs> is presented here. My notes just say this. My notes say juggling and unicycles and heavy metal are happening. Yep. <laughs> all simultaneously. It's true. So, it, you know, again, we've got a big montage here. And it's those three things and pictures of computer screens with nothing but text on them in sort of equal proportions. And then uh, Cringely devotes uh, a series of interviews and montages to how unhealthily these people are living. Uh, one of them sleeps on the couch, and he achieves this by pulling his beanie over his eyes. Um, they look in the fridge, and it's uh, leftover pizza and Coke and Mountain Dew. One of the guys talks about how he drinks at least two liters of Coca-Cola a day. Um, I feel bad for his teeth and his, and his eventual diabetes. There's, um, I think it's the CEO or the founder of the startup where they are is interviewed about how he brought in pasta from home but let it to mold. It's it's the president, and he's the only guy who's wearing a button-down shirt. <laughs> yeah, but even he is, you know, uh, unable to keep a, a standard of, of health. You know, he's, he's well-groomed. He's relatively well-groomed, but even he is having moldy food linger in his office. And it's, again, it's just reinforcing all of the stereotypes. But, you know, we see this debate come up still today with, you know, startup frat culture, essentially. You know, 
companies that are almost entirely men, Mm -hmm. men in their early 20s who either just graduated college or didn't make it through college. And, you know, it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, especially the part with, oh, well, you know, all these guys just together sleeping on couches, eating cold pizza. Well, they definitely won't be able to, you know, like understand women or have a decent social life. What is it about the internal logic of a computer that's so enticing? For one thing, such logic can be understood, as opposed to things that can't be understood at all, like the motivations of young women, say, or of the French. Which is frustrating because, I mean, (laughs) this is a little bit of an aside, but my office that I work in now, not in a tech startup, there's a tech startup that's one floor below us. And, you know, they've got your you know, normal 2015, like, open plan. They've got, like, you know, beanbag chairs and standing desks. And, like, each person has, like, 10 times as much space as the people in my office upstairs. Um, And, you know, like, every once in a while, like, the sound travels through the ductwork in our building. And so we were trying to have, like, a serious meeting the other day, and it was just, like, dance party down there. (laughs) Which, like, is fine. You know, like... Brian, you know, you've worked also at, you know, tech companies once they had gotten big, like Facebook and Twitter. Mm -hmm. And there's that, I mean, I remember when I visited you at the Facebook office and um, those like goofy skateboards with two wheels were big. The ripsticks. Yeah. And like, that was how everybody got around the office. Exactly. And, you know, you know, there are still those like lighthearted parts and easygoing parts of startup culture that are the things that are to be praised. But they're not the things that are on display here and they're not the things that, you know, people are talking about in the news today. It's all of the misogyny and bad hiring practices and the things that we really need to get out of it. Startup culture, you know, should and can be fun, but it also has to, you know, treat everybody like humans. Yeah. So after this glimpse into uh, triumphant nerds running their startup, we uh, cringely decides to turn it back into a little bit of a, a history lesson. Roll back the tape to World War II. And I mean, it's, it's got your, your classic good, you know, how did we get to the microcomputer lesson? Well, we had vacuum tubes and then we had transistors and the transistors were still too big. So we figured out how to shrink transistors and print them directly on silicon. One of his best lines in the whole thing is where he says, And that's why they call it Silicon Valley, not Computer Valley. That's very clever and like a very pithy commentary and gives you a sense of the history, why this is important. And, you know, we were just talking about, um, you know, the plight of the nerds and the plight of the women who are outside of the, you know, bro culture. But he does at least mention Grace Hopper who is, you know, she's hailed as one of the heroes of computer history in general, but especially as an icon for women, uh, and mentions that, you know, she was working in the Navy and worked on projects that essentially led to the development of the COBOL programming language. And, man, she was just such a great advocate for, for technology and for women all the way until her death. And I gotta say... She has the most badass Wikipedia picture ever. She is in full uniform. She's, you know, 
little old lady in full uniform and just giving you this look like I can take you. <laughs> yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes for sure. We also get to see some of the other people that we are familiar with from Apple. Uh, Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple, features heavily in in the documentary. And man, Woz is great. He is, I, I have in my notes, he is forever the consummate nerd. <laughs> so he's the person who just brings the most enthusiasm to everything that he's talking about, but also gives you glimpses in these interviews and in any of the interviews that he's given since, really, that he just loves nerd stuff. Like, he casually mentions Magic the Gathering. It's like, okay, Waz, you played Magic. We get it. Yeah. Um, and, like, do you remember, like, five or ten years ago when, you know, he's off just sort of having fun, like, doing small projects. You know, he's got his Apple money, and he's not really interested in, like, being, a, you know, a giant in the tech industry anymore. And, like, he was off, like, coordinating people who played Segway Polo where they would actually get like polo mallets and everybody would have teams on segways and like run around a field and just like, this sounds like an oxymoron. It was like nerd Quidditch, like nerdier than Quidditch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's just how he has always approached this stuff. Yeah. uh, It struck me in the show, um, in the interview footage with him, he is upbeat. He's positive. He's smiling a lot. He's leaning forward. Yeah. He's excited about what he's talking about, and he's looking back on it fondly. Um, And then I realized, like, in the photos in articles about Segway Polo or whenever he pops up to make an appearance, he's usually smiling. He's just a a happy guy who's proud of what he's done um, and really enjoys the work. And I think that comes through in this show specifically. Yeah, and he's always, you know, like, people are always asking about the latest Apple stuff today. And he's always like, well, you know, I might not use it every day, but, you know, I tried it and, you know, they're doing some good things and they're, you know, but like, I'm, I don't care about that anymore. Just like, bring me the gadgets. I don't want to, you know, like I, I made the Apple II happen. Uh, I put in my hours now, just bring me the gadgets. Uh, So we continue the, the history of the computer, the physical computer. um, And we go to Intel. Right, because we've shrunk the computer down to the point that we can actually have personal computers. And he mentions that Intel has a 85% market share at that point, which uh, seems, I, I haven't looked up the numbers, but seems pretty constant about 20 years later. Yeah. I mean, there was the whole AMD thing that sort of came and went in the interim, but I, I would imagine that there, you know, any discussion of chip fabrication today says, you know, Intel has the best fab process. They always do, uh, they always can shrink the process one generation ahead of everybody else. It's why Apple keeps going back to them for their laptops. It's, you know, people speculate about going to them for chips inside of the iPhone, but, you know, probably won't happen because they don't want to create ARM chips. Um, They were a giant then and they're a giant now. Uh, Cringely begins his segment on intel by going through what i think was a museum of uh intel products chip fabrication and so on uh but the way that this is all stitched together i wonder if this is a museum perhaps in the lobby or ground floor of their headquarters which is a little uh self-important but you know they deserve it 
Well, and very much in contrast to Apple, I think it was, I think I heard it on maybe ATP recently. There's the story that when Jobs came back to Apple, they sort of did have like a an Apple museum on on the campus at Apple. And he's like, get rid of all this stuff. Like, why are you dwelling on the past? We need to make the new thing. But then we do get uh, a hilarious CGI of a giant 8080 chip, uh, like turning out of the darkness in space and then flying over the earth. And that must have been created for the documentary because I don't think the technology was there to create that at the release of the 8080 yeah, chip. Yeah, good point. So that's a, that's a bit of PBS license there. And uh, Cringely talks to the CEO at the time of Intel and marvels at how, like the, the small startup, the CEO doesn't have an office with the door. He has a cubicle just like everyone else. Um, so maybe these open plan... Uh, out in the open office environments, uh, we we can thank Intel for that, maybe. Well, the person he's talking to is Gordon Moore of Moore's Law fame. Yeah. Uh, and then we move on from Intel to MITS. A company that I had literally never heard of. Same here. <laughs> but we get sort of the full arc of that, even in the documentary, where they're talking to the, I guess, former president of MITS, who's from Georgia and has a lovely Georgia drawl. <laughs> um, and the basic story here is that MITS was a calculator company. They created the Altair, which was the world's first personal computer, but was essentially useless, but still sparked a lot of the personal computer revolution. And once their computer business fizzled out, uh, their their president decided, well, this wasn't for me, and he decided to go and get his license to be a medical doctor, and they show him with a stethoscope, because that's how medical doctors are represented. <laughs> yes, every time. Um, they, also talk to, uh, they also talk to some people in the tech press, and one of them is listed as being the co-founder of Mac World Magazine, Capital M space capital W. Nobody knows how to spell Macworld. <laughs> There's no space and no capital W. Uh, one interesting thing is that um, the Altair was, as Ed said, the first personal computer. It was a big success uh, despite being a box of switches and lights um, to represent the input and output of basically binary instruction. Um, but this was coming out of MIT's headquartered in Albuquerque. And just think, like, Gates was was working out of Harvard in Boston. Uh, the first hardware was coming out of MITS in Albuquerque. There are so many other places that could have been uh, Silicon Valleys. But, uh, like, could you just imagine, instead of Breaking Bad being the thing that people, at least that's what I think about <laughs> when I think about Albuquerque. Like, you could think of, of uh, a computer hardware industry coming out of there. It would have been a completely different world. I think the surrounding area that they show in Albuquerque is very fitting with Breaking Bad, though. They're like, it was it was seedy, like, you know, Mitts had, like, low-rent warehouse space, it seemed like, and everything around them was just, you know... I mean, again, they're playing up all the stereotypes, but they're like, 
There's, you know, hookers and drug dealers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Across the street. Where Bill Gates had to rent a hotel room and write some basic interpreter code. Um, which, I don't know, I guess really happened. Yeah, uh, that's that's what uh, Cringely launches into is that was, I think, was that Microsoft's first big contribution to the world of software? It was their big break, basically. Uh, a basic interpreter for the Altair that made it easy to program it. Really possible to program it. <laughs> From there, though, we spend most of the rest of the first episode on Apple and the creation of the Apple II. And so lots of great stuff from uh, Jobs and Waz in this. And one of the things that I really liked is that Jobs talks about basically his philosophy of product design. And, you know, we, we hear about this, but it seems totally true that Waz was the technical guy and Jobs was the business and art guy. And, you know, the Apple One was literally held together with ragged boards. <laughs> um, like, not even nicely cut wood boards. And, you know, it was generating excitement among computer enthusiasts in and around Stanford. But it wasn't a, com it wasn't a consumer electronic. And that was the vision that Jobs had. He says something that, you know, like, for every one person who was in the computer club... There were a thousand people out there who didn't want to build their own thing but would like to have one. It was very clear to me that while there were a bunch of hardware hobbyists that could assemble their own computers or at least take our board and add the transformers for the power supply and the case and the keyboard and go get a, you know, et cetera, go get the rest of the stuff. For every one of those, there were a thousand people that couldn't do that but wanted to mess around with programming, software hobbyists. He also has this great quote about Essentially, what inspires him and Apple product design that still continues on today, I think. It's the same thing that causes people to want to be poets instead of bankers. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think that that same spirit can be put into products. And those products can be manufactured and given to people, and they can sense that spirit. And there's a brief bit of footage in this segment where Cringely goes and meets Jim Warren, who organized uh, hardware trade shows. And uh, one of them was, I think, the, the big release, or uh, at least when the mainstream became aware of the Apple II. And because uh, Jim Warren was a child of the 60s, which becomes a theme in this segment, uh, he and Cringely have their interview, conduct their interview in his jacuzzi, and there's like gratuitous footage of them stripping off their clothes to get in. The scene is completely inexplicable. Yeah. Uh, so the, the trade show offered the public a look and uh, able to use the Apple II. And it was very successful. It was well-designed. It was self-contained in uh, a pretty small box for the time. And it went on to sell what they say more than 10 million. And traditional Steve Jobs acumen, they mentioned that they got like the primo spot at the trade show, like first guys inside the door, and they had the best product there. So, you know, like they were going to get the most attention even if they were in the back corner because they had the best product, but that was not enough for Jobs. And yeah, they mentioned that at the time of the recording 20 years ago, basically, 
is that there were more than 10 million Apple computers, I think, period. Does that probably includes Macs and Apple IIs? Probably, actually. In use at the time. And, oh, now how the times have changed. <laughs> as we found out that Apple sold 70 million iPhones last quarter in three months. Just an astonishing number. And uh, this next part was something I actually didn't know about the history of Apple. But uh, to basically get to where they were making uh, wooden computers that are kind of cobbled together to the point where they're tooling machines uh, that are, are uniform and well-designed, they needed to raise venture capital, which blows my mind thinking about Apple as, as one of the companies, if not... Well, they say that it was it was really essentially the first instance or, you know, one of the first instances of a venture capital backed company. It was a new idea. Right. Um, and so they went to Arthur Rock, who was an investor. And as, as they say in the, in the show, the, the inventor of venture capital, I'll, I'll believe it. Like, you know, at this early on uh, at the uh, creation of the Apple II, and of course, again, just to juxtapose the stereotypes, <laughs> they go to Rock's not cubicle office, and he's you know dressed very natally with you know tie and everything, and sort of leans back at his desk and describes how Steve Jobs came sauntering into his office. Well, he uh, wore sandals and he uh, had long, very long hair and uh, beard and mustache, but very articulate. He uh, was, I think he, at one time in his life, and it was probably when I first met him that he ate nothing but fruit. I can totally imagine this too. There, you know, there's lots of photos mostly, but some stock footage as well of, of Waz and Jobs in early days of Apple. And every single time you see them, their hair is just all over the place. <laughs> it's like, They've got a beard. They've got a mustache. They've got a long beard. It's a scraggly beard. They've got long hair. They've got short hair. <laughs> like just every permutation. And, you know, you can tell that, you know, again, with the stereotypes, but for these two guys, appearance was not of, you know, primary importance. But there was one thing where they showed it was this like, I don't even know what the event was. It was like demo of the Apple II. And they're both in like tuxes. And they're up on stage. Again, Waz, totally just huge grin on his face. And, you know, and they were probably in their like mid-20s at that point. And, you know, they dress up good. Like, they, they didn't look bad. But, you know, once again, just like, uh, you know, someone had them do that, it seems. If we're thinking about the same clip from the show, I it's, yeah, it's at some kind of trade show. It says, like, Apple II forever or something. Yeah, yeah. And I think they show the back of the... Uh, auditorium and there are like show women like almost booth babes holding up apple twos very briefly and like walking around and when they cut back to uh jobs and wozniak on stage you can see steve jobs is like rolling his eyes he does a full face palm yeah yeah he does a face palm that's what it is he's like oh my god <laughs> what are we doing here man uh so yeah the the apple II is uh painted here as a runaway hardware success but the final segment of this episode of the show is about the first killer app, the first great piece of software that really helped sell the Apple II. 
And it may not be what you think. It certainly was a surprise to me that this was the first killer app. I knew of this in the back of my mind, but hadn't really been through the full history. And the app in question is VisiCalc. The first spreadsheet. And it's interesting. They say like when, you know, because it was the first spreadsheet, they couldn't sell it as a spreadsheet because no one knew what spreadsheet meant. But they do a sort of very convincing demonstration of, you know, basically ledger accounting and how it was extremely time consuming and boring and error prone. And if you can get all the numbers in a spreadsheet and have it calculate for you, so much better. We've talked about companies, we've talked about MITS in Albuquerque, Microsoft at uh, Boston, Harvard, um, Apple in Silicon Valley. The VisiCalc people came out of the Harvard Business School, another thing out of Boston. Um, and I found it interesting that it's, it's the business school at Harvard. It's not even a, a technical school, a computer science program. And uh, especially interesting when you think of MIT is also right there in Boston, and we get plenty of things that are um, category-defining, even industry-defining coming out at MIT now. But the first killer app, the first killer piece of software came out of the Harvard Business School. They sold VisiCalc for 100 bucks a pop, came on a nice five and a quarter inch floppy, which they, they sort of flashed to the camera <laughs> at one point. Um, and this was a huge business. They were t selling tons of copies of the software at, you know, 1980s software prices, not $2 premium iOS game prices. <laughs> um, so, you know, VisiCalc would be, you know, another huge tech giant, right? But no, turns out not, because while they made plenty of money from actual sales of VisiCalc, they didn't do one thing that could have just made them an industry-dominant force. Because uh, the two founders of VisiCalc were the first people to come up with the concept of a computer spreadsheet, they could have patented it and basically prevented things like Excel and numbers from ever existing because they would not be allowed to create software with the spreadsheet functionality. But the two founders had a very different view on how they should run their business. I mean, even though they went to Harvard Business School, you know, they saw it as selling a product, not dominating an industry in the same way. We're kids of the 60s. And what did you want to do? You wanted to make the world better. And you wanted to make your mark in the world and improve things. And we did it. So by the mark of what we would measure ourselves by, we're very successful. Yes. This segment is also nicely buttoned by Waz, again, being excited and talking about uh, all the success that's going around. And a particularly cool thing about it is that he compares the success back then of the Apple II and VisiCalc um, and, the, and the mainstream excitement around it to what he calls the, the same reception and excitement for the internet today. Today being 1996. Uh, there was this huge media explosion, kind of like the internet is receiving today, of this is the happening thing. You read about it over and over and over, and every time you took an airplane flight, you read about it. And every newspaper every week, you'd read something about small computers coming, and Apple was one of the highlight companies. So we were being portrayed as a leader of a revolution. And I feel like he's had quotes like this multiple times, even since then, you know, with, with mobile, with, you know, like I said, he's not, you know, gung-ho for the iPhone because he doesn't have that sort of same Apple loyalty. He's really just, you know, 
a nerd going for the best products. Um, but he's come out and said things like this all the time. Like, this is the next wave. This is the next big thing. We should all be excited for it. Isn't it so cool? <laughs> so that brings us to the end of the episode of Triumph of the Nerds and also to the end of our episode. And we'll just go with the closing scene of of the documentary here which again this is it an all cringely scene um all cringing cringeworthy scene um where he sums up you know where we stand at the at the end of the apple II era and we're going to move into the mac versus pc era in the next show and he says some things that are almost not english here we go Apple had emerged as the top fungus and had taken 50% of the market. To the boys in Cupertino, every day seemed like Christmas. But Scrooge was around the corner. There was a company that everyone associated with the word computer, a company that expected, no, demanded to dominate its market, IBM. Big Blue was on the move, and Silicon Valley would soon be feeling the reverberations. And note for effect that as he is talking about reverberations, there is a terrible... Uh, shake effect added to the visuals clearly in post-production yeah i i still just want to know what a top fungus is (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah so that concludes the episode and then they roll credits which goes back to the the bad cartoon uh bad cartoon montage of the title sequence so we hope you've enjoyed uh, getting through the Apple II era. We're going to continue on with Triumph of the Nerds because we got to get to that sugar water quote. Uh, we're going to do two more short episodes on the remaining uh, the remaining episodes in the series. So, you know, a little bit less of the exposition and history that we did today, but we'll do some, some commentary and we think we're going to release those next week and the week after. So a little bit off of our regular schedule, uh, but we want to, we want to power through the series and, uh, get some more perspective and uh, have some more face palms of our own at bad 1990s commentary on the tech industry. Our show notes for this episode, which include links uh, to various places where you can view the Triumph of the Nerd series on your own, are at simplebeep.com, or if you're listening to this far off in the future, simplebeep.com slash episodes. If you have feedback, you can contact us through our website or you can find us on twitter at simple underscore beep and you can find each of us on twitter as well i'm e cormany e-c-o-r-m-a-n-y and i'm b suto b-s-u-t-o we'll see you next time nerds